From the Duck South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here's your host, Rocky LaFleur. I bet you slice into the woods a hundred bucks. Gambling is illegal at Bushwood, sir, and I never slice. Also starring Josh Webb, Jake LaTondras, Rob Kroon, David Ellis, and Ramsey Russell. Showtime. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome to the End of the Line podcast. I'm Rocky LaFleur in the Ducks House Studios. I guess the vet office is in Ducks House Studios today. But joining me today, Ramsey Russell. Hiram McCauley, guys, how are you? Doing great. Yes, sir. Doing fine, Rocky. If I was any better, I'd be in a duck blind. It's duck season somewhere, isn't it? Still duck season in Argentina. Somewhere. Oh, yes, sir. It, it was. I it. Are you finally recovering after three or four weeks back from Argentina? I'm physically recovered, but mentally I still wish I was down there. I don't think I've Me recovered uh, back to the work, <laughs> work deal yet. Uh-uh. No, my, my trigger finger's finally healing up. My shoulder is. But I, I, that, that, was, that was such an epic uh, ending to a trip. I didn't want to leave. Usually, after being down there for extended periods, I'm ready to come home. Uh, I'm, you know, no, I, I was ready to stay. I had a great time. You know, we had a good group of guys too. That was just so much fun. Great group group of guys, and you know, finishing strong. Um, there is nothing wrong with that. It was definitely an experience every way you slice that thing. That's for sure. From the mud and the getting stuck to the unbelievable numbers of ducks <laughs> and the cool Estancia, and I mean, it was just unreal. You know, there, there, there's many times that I found myself, Ira, saying, man, I wish I'd just sit in the blind and just listen to that conversation. I can say with 100% honesty that I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall with you, Ramsey, and Lee. All in, were y'all all in the same blind together? No. No, you know, no the kicker. conversation no. got really interesting once we got back and got around the the uh, the bar. That's when you wanted to be a you didn't want to be a fly on the wall. You wanted to be right right in the middle of all that. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We we went we were, in, we were in the work when we were in the blind. It, 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 that that place is kind of BYOB if you want something decent to drink, buddy. Did we bring some? And um, so we had a, we had a real good time socializing and it was uh it was a crowd of us it, it was uh myself and ira and lee and jeff watt and pete alfano and dougie fresh from missouri a big restaurant owner and we just had a fun crowd and a lot of subject matter to talk about i mean it was never ending subject matter you know it's a good thing martha's got a strong constitution for goodness sakes oh she does like like a house mom but you know that particular place, Rocky. You go out by yourself. You, you, it's you and your guide. And uh, there was so much water in that marsh as compared to last year. You may remember last year it was dry as a bone. Well, that marsh got wet, and buddy, the duck showed up. The habitat was prime, and and we were all treated to 
a spectacle that that um, myself I, I've never seen it quite like that, and and it it was just it was it was just unbelievable. Lee and I, Lee was working on a story, and so we we shared a blind together uh, for three mornings. We shared a blind together for three mornings, and uh, and that that was very interesting. I really uh, enjoyed hunting with Lee, but we didn't get in each other's way. We just shot ducks, and then we went back and talked about it, and uh, had a great time up there. Yeah, I mean, you Jeff know, and I were talking on the backside, and we were like, shoot, we should have hunted together. There were so many ducks. It would have been, you know, I, I can see when, you know, it's a down down year or whatever, but, man, it wasn't like there was uh, any any lack of, of opportunity. No, it, it, was, was, it, it was like every duck in the universe was in that marsh this year. <laughs> you know, we were talking about Yellowstone in the pre-production or the before we started hit the record button, and... Sometime during this week, Lee said something about he was taking pictures out of out of I don't know if it was during the production or after the production of Yellowstone. And man, I thought that was cool. He hung out with Rip at the uh after after party or whatever after you get through shooting for the day. I said, Man, that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Lee gets to hang out in fancy circles. And for yeah. those of you who don't know, <laughs> Lee Chose is who we're talking about. And, and, man, I was just sitting there listening to Lee talk about this, and I was like, wow, man, this is awesome. He, he he doesn't take pictures every waking moment of the day, but he's thinking about it, or he's editing, or, or he's plotting, or, he, you know, he, he's got a scheme. Like, when we went to – we all went to La Paz and shot a bunch of doves and pigeons and parakeets and a few – actually shot a bunch of doves there for La Paz. It, it was uh got off in the river and uh boy Ira and I and Jeff, we we had some freaking river adventures, Rocket. We would we would get to the boat ramp and up the Paraná River for an hour and then peel off into mm-hmm. a little channel and get up near some agriculture and uh the the water'd fallen out of the agriculture because the river had fallen. So the ducks were off in the wild water and it was it was pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a real hunt, as much real hunt as you want. And and Lee was Lee had, had hurt himself. He'll talk about it when he's on the podcast, but uh, on, on an assignment. So he was just kind of coasting, getting ready for Rio Salado. But he just one day sitting around the house, Cooper Eight decided he was going to do a story on this wild marsh Rio Salado and. We all came in one morning. We had marching orders, didn't we, Ira? He he, he oh, was yeah. in the game mode, and 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 it was a game plan. And um and he he's he's the he's the quarterback and the coach. So you know we we uh he let us know exactly what we were going to do when we got there. And um but a really really interesting guy. Everybody everybody the whole the whole crowd everybody had a story. And you know Ramsey, I'm we need Ira. a t-shirt. We need we a t-shirt, need a t-shirt. That says, I survived the photo shoot. That damn photo shoot about killed us all. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, the one in the back of the truck. You know he, he, he's that doing then, it for a ma- <laughs> that and then when he loaded us down and Pete went swimming. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Oh my gosh! That was that was funny. I had All just right, gotten I out of my mouth. Got to hear the backstory well, on this. Well, uh, Lee decided he needed a picture with the four of us hauling heavy straps. Out of out of the water, you know, uh, for a photo he's doing. And one one the first picture we're talking about was wanting to be in back of a truck. But this particular magazine got involved with truck, 
got to have a truck. And he, he knew just the picture he wanted. But the second one, we waited out in a marsh. I had to carry them ducks out in the boat a little bit. And we was far enough out in the water, I'd say, cross deep. You know, we strapped on them ducks. And mine was pretty darn heavy. I ain't gonna lie to you, it was too heavy. <laughs> and especially if I had to walk with the mud underneath me. And, and uh, I got adjusted and I, I just looked at Pete and said, if you fall in, I'm not going to laugh. And it, like, right on cue, he teetered he over backwards, went completely underwater. Well, I, was, I had so many ducks on my shoulder, and the mud was so deep, I couldn't move. I couldn't move to go even pick him up. So the bird boys had to come running. And, and when he come up, it sounded like a whale's blowhole. <laughs> when he came out of that water. <laughs> and, of course, Lee, the photographer, just says, all right, shake it off, Pete, and keep walking to me. I got to get this picture. And we all bust out laughing. Yeah, buddy, he is definitely a commander when it comes to that stuff. Mm-hmm. You better toe the line. But he gets the image. He he really does. He he is uh he is very very good at what he does. Very good at what he does. That has got to be to the human body coming from Argentina because the temperatures down there, from what I saw. We're in the 30s and 40s at night, and you step off that plane. I guess most flights go through Miami or Houston, one of the two. Man, that's got to be a shocker when you step off that plane. Yeah. It, it, it Refreshing when a, you get it, there. It's hot as heck when you get back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, um, I, I'd, I'd say it's 50, 60 degrees where we were, a little bit cooler in the mornings, a lot of high humidity like like the deep south. But boy, when you step off that plane, that 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 good old southern heat just wraps around you like a wet, warm blanket, and 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 you say, "Oh Lordy, I'm home now." No doubt about that. Well, y'all both—I guess y'all both came back through Houston, right? Mm-hmm. Oh. Uh, well, we came back on separate flights. I I came back through Houston. Where'd y'all come back through? All right, uh, Miami. Atlanta? Miami. No. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> no, let me think here. God, I've been so many places this summer. Maybe we came back through Atlanta. I think y'all were on that Miami. Delta flight. I can't remember, I can't remember which one. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of you guys probably wondering why Ira is here. Well, you're not wondering why. I mean, Ira is a huge part of the waterfowling industry, but I, I said uh, I found out that Ira was with Ramsey on a hunt down in Argentina, and I, I kind of said, Ramsey, you want to do a story? There it is. To me, Ira has, you know, most of the people that have a large influence and change kind of innovate and change a certain community, kind of like Ira has done with the waterfowling community. Usually, you see and hear that person a lot. And I'm not saying that you're secretive at all, Ira. You just just work hard and you you don't care about the spotlight, I guess. But but you've, you've changed the waterfowling community and the waterfowling industry for the better. And I said, we've got to do that story, Ramsey. And mm-hmm. I said, can you put oh, a yeah. bug in his ear and see if he'll do it? And anyway, we're lucky, lucky enough to have you on here to do that story. And we're calling it the innovator. 
And so I'm excited about doing this with you, Ira. <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity, and, and certainly I'm passionate about our community and, and waterfowling in general and, and sporting dogs and all those things that most of us are really into that are diehard duck hunters and waterfowlers in general. So thank you. Now, you know, Ira, I've, I've, I've known you. I've known you, Ira, for, you know, I feel like I've known you for a long time, going all the way back. Avery Pro Staff, when 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 that meant something, you know, instead of just Instagram clicks or something, you know, it, it that, that was a very uh, interesting collection of people, and where a lot of those people have gone since then, uh, it had been pretty darn impressive. But but you know, on this particular trip, we got to spend some time together, and I really really got to got to know you and hear a lot of your stories and your background, and that that's that's just. Uh, I think the reason we don't hear much from you, like 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 uh, Rocky's talking about, it, is because you're so busy. I don't know how you manage it. I'll be honest with you. Most days I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> for for those of you that don't know, you you know the name Ira McCauley because he he started in Mo Marsh. But one thing that you don't may not know about him, he's a veterinarian first and foremost with two practices. Am I right about that or three? Well, we have two practices. Yep. Two practices, very, very successful practices also. I'll add that. But I'm married to a vet, of course, like most of you know this listening to this. And I know what a veterinarian's life is like. And to be able to handle that and also start a successful company like Mo Marsh, I want to hear that story. Dude, that's, that's awesome. That's unreal. There's got to be a huge, huge story there. There is. Yeah, yep. It's a cool story. The Habitat Flat story is cool. Um, you know, just been blessed to have some have such success in our our little community and uh, and have a lot of fun along the way too. That's that's what really makes it a good deal. Ira, I know well, look, I know you I know you up there in Missouri, and that that you know that's that's I guess your whole life that I've known you. You've been up in that part of the world uh, in Missouri, but you know your origins are from elsewhere and that 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 would be a a logical starting point to me i'd love to hear you share you know where you come from and how you grew up you know you got got a fascinating history had a lot of a lot of influences in your life coaching you along as you were a young man getting into duck hunting well before we do i want to tell you a little about a little bit about our partnership with toe tags of course most of you listened to the story with brian warden uh, Ryan Warden started the Toe Tags LLC. Uh, toe Tags were developed to help you, the hunter, easily and conveniently tag your waterfowl and game birds and bring you in compliance with the Federal Migratory Game Bird Treaty Act of 1918. You can get your toe tags, and you want to support this podcast and support Ryan. Understand that. You can get those through ducksouth.myshopify.com. I'm going to put that in there before we get started. but. Just like Ramsey said, Ira, all of us were instilled with basic foundational principles that make us who we are today. And you know the things that I've that I've talked about just a few minutes ago: um, hard worker, smart. All of those things have to come together. All of those basic principles that were instilled in you when you were young. And like Ramsey said, who 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 instilled in your love for hunting? 
Well, it was definitely my dad. Um, you know, when we were young, he, he was an Air Force pilot for 20 years, and so I was a military brat. And uh, when I was real little, we lived in San Antonio, Texas, and Dad had a deer lease uh, in the hill country there. And so when I was like four and five years old, he would he would take me deer hunting with him. And obviously all I did was just kind of tag along. But uh, I, there's one story in particular there about when we were driving in this old 69 Scout. It was maroon with a white removable hard top. And uh, he saw a buck across this gully or ravine or whatever we called him back then. And uh, so he stopped. And he was going to go put the sneak on this thing. Well, we'd heard some coyotes howling earlier. And I'm sitting in that truck by myself. And, man, I think I hear something. And here for too long, I lay on the horn because I'm scared to guess. I'm going to get eaten. And uh, I, he said like four or five different bucks flushed him out from underneath this oak tree. And he killed a nice eight-pointer. So he always said that was Ira's buck. And I had to be – I might have been five years old or something like that. But uh, that was kind of my first – hunting experiences was tagging along with my dad uh off to his deer lease in the hill country and uh then it just kind of all went from there um after that we moved to the philippines for several years and there was no hunting there we fished a little bit um but my brother and i we were always outside even though there wasn't anything to really hunt there you know we were always catching frogs and whatever we could round up, throwing them in the bathtub and, and taking baths with them and, and all that kind of stuff, you know. And um, So then when I really got back into hunting was when we moved back to the States. I was in fifth grade, so I was 10 years old. And my brother was eight. And Dad went overseas somewhere to train people how to fly our fighter planes. And um, so my mom and my brother and I lived with my grandma this grandma lived in, in Brookshire, Texas, which is just south of Katy, Texas, which is just south of Houston. And uh, back in the day, when I was 10, so that would have been 40 years ago, um, and there was tons of rice down there. I mean, just tons of rice fields and huge amounts of waterfowl. I mean, lots and lots of pintails, lots of mallards, um, lots of speckle bellies, snow geese, just all kinds of waterfowl. And... Uh, so my brother and I, you know, we'd go and, and chase him. And when dad was back in town, he'd take us. And, uh, you know, it was just a different world back then. Um, I specifically remember riding around the back of that old silver Buick and looking out across those rice fields. And all you could see were green heads and white and brown heads as, as solid as a, as a carpet. And, um, man, the people that live down south today, they, they've never seen anything like that probably the vast majority of them that that, uh, that are duck hunters nowadays have not, not seen that because I'm sure it hasn't been that way for a long, long time. But uh, we had nothing. We weren't we couldn't call ourselves duck hunters back then. We didn't have any decoys. We didn't have any calls. Uh, all that we had were bicycles and a shared car and some shotguns. And a shared belly car. full of desired yeah, I mean, we had one, you know, we had one car, so, uh, you know, my mom might drive it or my grandma might drive it or if my dad was in town, he, he'd drive it. Um, but it wasn't like we had a truck or any sort of ATV or anything like that, you know, it was just a old Sunday car, and that was what we'd go make the rounds in, you know. 
you know, you back then you shared a lot of things: phone lines, cars. It was. It oh was yeah. A, <laughs> it was a. Can you tell people about a what was the what was the the what was it called? I'm losing my mind today. Um, party line. Party line. Party line. The old party yeah. line. Where you you couldn't use your phone because the other person that you shared a phone line with may be on the phone, but I've never heard right. of the shared car. Well, a car was a precious commodity back then. Oh, it's a big deal. Yeah. You know, we just uh, we take it for granted that we have four wheel drive and and ATVs and UTVs and uh, surface drive motors and all that stuff. Now there's no place that's sacred. Back then, you were just doing good to get get in the area. Mm-hmm. All right, so I, right. I I heard what you said when your dad was a a pilot in the Air Force, right? Yep. All right, let's start here. The thing that I know about most commercial pilots, they are some of the smartest people in the world. They're very detailed because you don't want a, you know, uh, a, a last-born child being the pilot of a commercial aircraft. You want a firstborn. You want that smart, detailed guy in control of the airplane in the air. And so yeah. that your intellect and your detail, I'm just guessing, had to come a lot from him. Your well, my dad detail. is. A, he's a really smart guy. He he is a member of Mensa and all that stuff. So extremely book smart. Um, you know, if you talk to my mother about him, he doesn't know how to tie his shoes or, or cook a bowl of cereal, but, but that's not all entirely true for, by any stretch of the imagination, but definitely one of those guys that can pick up any subject and, and run with it and know a whole lot about it, even though he, he's maybe never done it. You know what I mean? Right. He, uh, in fact, I just saw him. I came down here to get away. I came down to the city farm to have some quiet down here, and he was down here. And I said, "What are you doing down here?" He said, "Oh, just just trespassing, looking for dubs." <laughs> uh, All right. So, anyway. if your dad was a, dad was a intellect, attention to detail. I'm going to say that by your personality and as open as you are, and laughing, and uh, you know be easy to talk to. I'm going to guess that your mama was probably opposite of him. Your mom was. Oh, oh man, my mom, she's a firecracker. That's for sure. Um, she's strung <laughs> pretty tight, and uh, there is no grass that grows underneath her feet. She dang sure wore the pants in the family. That's for sure. When she said jump, we all said, how high? And how many times? She could not mess with her. Dad was kind of a pushover uh, when it came to all that stuff. But boy, you did not cross her, buddy. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, she would always tell us, hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not the smartest and, and all that, but uh, I always had to try 10 times harder than everybody else. And, and so, you know, she would always remind us that, you know, if we weren't getting the results we wanted, then you better just step on the gas a little bit harder and try a little bit harder. So that was kind of the way that those two were, were wired back then and, and still still are, really. She's but she's the, the one. She she she's the one that taught you how, that shared with you or started the tradition of that excellent Syrian bread y'all made. Is that right? Oh yeah, yep. That's uh, her and side of the family. You've been eating that since you were a child. 
Oh yeah, they're they're all from Louisiana, and you may remember Ramsey that my my grandpa passed away while we were in Argentina, and so I went right. to his funeral um, down there, and uh, we got to do all that stuff again and have a have a great time, great celebration of my grandpa's life. It was awesome. It's good. It's really good. Ira, every yeah, book, man. every book starts out. Let, let's say we're writing the book of Ira today. And we're writing the first chapter. We're talking about how would how would for somebody that does not know you, how would you what are the most important you know, principles that you live by in life? Is that the best way to ask that, Ramsey? Mm-hmm. I I think I think that's a good idea. What's your what's your code? <laughs> Well, you know what, I mean, what, I, what? What? What came from them that made you who you are today? Oh, I mean, I think it's the uh, the same principles that you know most people that uh, want to have success in life and incorporate into their life, which is you know being honest, treating other people like you want to want to be treated, um, work hard, uh, be on time, um, try to do the right thing. You know, just all those principles that are, are principles that make somebody a person that hopefully uh, it makes them into a person that other people want to be around. And and I think that that you know having having those values, you can call them Christian values or good moral compass or whatever you want to call it. But ultimately, that's what helps to lead somebody into in a successful direction for success through their life, whether it's business-wise or happiness or whatever, right? Oh, yeah. So, right. you know, I think our moral uh, compass was set right, and we worked hard, and, and and you know, there's some degree of luck that goes along with all that stuff, too. Trust me, I've done some dumb, like really dumb, super dumb things, and still occasionally do some dumb things, and, uh, you know, sometimes a little bit of luck helps, too. I'd rather be lucky than good, Ira. <laughs> yeah, we've said that before. That's for sure. All right. Well, that's let me say sure. this, Ira. Let me say this. So, I do a before somebody comes on here with me, I'll, I'll do a lot of investigating, calling around, finding out about somebody. And here's the here's the theme that I get back. The one of the first things that comes out of people's mouths that know you well. Their their first way of describing you is a hard worker. You had, at a young age, had to be taught that. You, you there has to be structure at a young age to continue on into your adult life. Like had to get up at five o'clock in the morning and feed the pigs every morning or whatever. I'm just saying something that hard work ethic had to be instilled at a young age in you. Yeah, I mean, for us, it was really competitive swimming. You know, we we swam competitively and later played water polo um, competitively. But, you know, there were many, many, uh, probably the majority of the year, we were doing two-a-day practices. So, you know, we'd have practice before school, and then we'd have practice again after school. And uh, I don't know how many people that are listening to this were competitive swimmers, but you talk about the most boring thing you can do in the wide, wide world of sports, uh, I think competitive swimming is it because you know back then there were no underwater ear ear pods or anything like that you know it was just sweat your ass off in the water 
looking at a black line going from one end to the other, glance at the clock, see where you were, and do it again, and occasionally get yelled at by by your coach, you know. But uh, there's one thing I would not wish upon my kids: it was to be a competitive swimmer, for goodness sakes. And uh, but <laughs> on the flip side, I do think it builds a lot of character because uh, it's hard work, it's very structured, and uh, you know, there's no social uh, enjoyment or any of that stuff. You know, it's just you and yourself sitting there. You have a lot of time to do a lot of soul searching, that's for sure. Which events did we did a lot of that? In? Uh, man, I, I was pretty good at everything except breaststroke. I was terrible at breaststroke, but uh, I was very good at backstroke and very good at butterfly and pretty darn good yeah. at, at freestyle as well. I've been told so, I dog paddled with the best of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you should have been a water polo player then. Oh, but yeah, swimming was think... a big part of our life when we were young. That's that's for sure. About all I did was swim and hunt and work and go to school. We didn't watch what... any TV. You know, we got to watch one hour of TV a week. Aaron and I would watch one hunting show on a Saturday morning. That was all the TV we got to watch. Wow. Of course, we had one TV uh, with two or three channels, you know. Ira, we talked about it in the pre-show. You know, one thing I remember from my childhood, and, and to this day, you know, we went down to Argentina, shot all them birds. Here comes here comes Labor Day weekend. Yeah, I'm going to go out there and have a heat stroke trying to shoot 15. What what are but – I, but I, it's because I remember those days. Those were my defining memories of my childhood hunting with my – you know, my grandfather and my father. Who? What? What are? What are some of those memories you hang on from back in those days? Well, you know, so today uh, I own several businesses with my brother, and he and I are two two years apart. So we've always been really, really close, and we're still really close, and we still do a lot of stuff together. And we grew up. I mean, we were each other's best friends when we grew up because we didn't live like in a subdivision where there were all kinds of other kids around. We lived in a, on a little street down in North Charleston, South Carolina. And, uh, there weren't any other kids around. It was me and him and that was it. And, uh, so we were, you know, eight and 10 years old, 11 and nine. So we were going through that period of time and, and we spent all of our time outside. I mean, we were always out in the outdoors killing or catching something that was just that was just what we did. That was how we relaxed. It was really a huge part of our life back then. And, uh, so, you know, when we back to Brookshire real quick, when we'd stay at our grandma's, if mom wouldn't, couldn't take us, uh, duck hunting and goose hunting, then we'd get on our bicycles and we'd tear off riding with our shotguns right through the middle of town. I mean, it was a different day and time. And, uh, I mean, if you saw an eight year old and a 10 year old, riding down the street on their bicycles with shotguns today, that parent would be in jail. But back then, it was just kind of what what we did. and Nobody ever said a, a word about it, you know. We'd ride back with whatever we'd happened to kill. And, and uh, you know, the worst thing that ever happened was Aaron stuck his barrel of his gun through the spokes in his in his bicycle and went ass <laughs> over the tea kettle and busted his lip up. And, we got back and he was bleeding everywhere and they thought that he you know, one of us had shot him and we told him what happened, but you know, it was just you just dusted yourself off and kept on going. But um uh, when we lived in South Carolina, you know, dad he was gone flying a lot 
and we lived, there was a set of railroad tracks back behind our house not too far, and we had pellet guns, and I mean, we, there was nothing that was safe back there. Uh, we'd shoot clapper rails and pigeons and robins and doves and, and uh, squirrels and woodcock and rabbits and everything, and whatever we killed, we'd bring back and we'd clean them, and then mom would cook them. And that was just like a daily occurrence. I mean, we ate whatever we shot, and there was nothing that was safe, you know. And, uh, man, we had so many good times back there just doing what, honestly, what in my mind a lot of kids probably ought to be doing nowadays. But for us, it was it was really, really a huge part of our life, and uh, that's what we did, you know. And that and then, I mean, we were little kids, I mean, maybe like, 11 and 9 we had our own boat we we bought our own boat and uh we lived pretty close to a river like two blocks from the ashley river and my mom would drive us down there we had an old vw uh van with the pop-up camper shell thing on top and all that and she'd drive us down there and she'd say okay i'm gonna bring you lunch at noon be back here at noon so he and i would crab and shrimp and cast net and fish and kneeboard behind this little boat you know it was like a probably a 14 foot fiberglass b-hole with a old 20 horse motor on it you know if we were so little we could do all that and good god we'd be on the kneeboard and we'd see an alligator and all hell break loose you know we're both scared to death and we'd make it past that and then we'd go you know catch a bunch of shrimp and crabs and we didn't have a cooler so we'd just throw them into a trash can she'd you know there was some holes in it so that you could have water going through it and she'd bring us our lunch and make sure we were still alive and then she'd leave again and she'd come back and pick us up at like four o'clock and she'd bring us down to the corner there and we had a little sign uh seafood for sale or whatever it said and whatever we'd caught we'd sell right there on the street corner and we'd split the money and back home we'd go and do it again the next day so that was kind of when we were, you know, young, that was kind of what we were doing. We were enjoying uh, the river and enjoying the lifestyle of living in, on the coast there, you know, off the shrimp and the crabs and the fish. And, uh, you know, they were, our parents today, they'd be in jail, but they honestly did us the biggest favor that they ever could have done us by giving us some personal responsibility and giving us a little bit of leash and luckily we didn't hang ourselves you know i think that that really is a big part of the reason that we ended up wired like we were was just that you know we learned to be independent and we learned to have a great time and not be scared of stuff you know that's back in the good old days when they when parents would let kids be kids isn't it oh buddy yeah those days are you know those days are over around my house i guarantee you mm-hmm one of my one of my favorite memories is my first duck. I've told the story numerous times throughout this podcast, and I ask this to everybody that comes on this podcast. Do you remember your first duck or goose? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I remember my mm-hmm. first duck. I don't remember my first goose, but it would have been killed right there at the same time in the same similar way. Um, like I said before, we had nothing. We, we had no decoys. All we had was a gun. And so my mom dropped Aaron and I off one morning and there was a little ditch that you could skivvy down and get to this little pond and a rice field. And we knew that there were ducks on that thing fairly often. So she drops us off in the dark and he and I are 
belly crawling. I don't know why. It was dark. We just didn't know any difference. We're we're sneaking down this ditch, and all of a sudden, there we are face to face with a skunk in this ditch in the dark. And we both we didn't really know a ton about skunks, but we knew that it was a skunk and it was not good. And this sucker took off and sprayed. And neither one of us got a direct hit right in the eyes, but we still stunk. And you know, mom's not coming back to get us for two hours. So what are we gonna do? Well, we go on down to the pond and there were some ducks on it. And of course we scare them off and we don't get a shot, you know, so we're just sitting there hoping and praying that something comes flying by. So we're sitting there like, you know, not like duck hunters, just like losers really. And so finally we see a duck and here he comes and, and Smelly we're, trying decide, we're trying to decide if we're going to shoot at it on the wing or if we're going to let it land. And I'm like, no, don't shoot at it. So it lands and it's a mallard hen. And I'm like, there is no freaking way that I'm running the risk of missing this duck on the wing. So I let it land out there, and we're trying to figure out who's going to get to shoot it. Well, of course, me being the older brother, I just shoot it. And Aaron gets all mad and ticked off and all that stuff. But that was my first duck, a mallard hen, by about the least uh, – the, the, the least – um, uh, the least, uh, I don't know, what would you say, the least usual methods ever out there. You know, I was just an unlucky duck that was in the wrong spot at the wrong time. <laughs> Mine was but, hey, I was proud, though, okay? I was a proud Arkansas, all right? Well, I, so the other thing that always comes up when you, you talk to people about Ira McCauley, it is um, smart. Very, very smart. That had to be an important. Um, had to be important to your parents to instilling, still in you that that hey, you you got to do well in school. Yeah, I think they just kind of expected that. I never thought of myself as smart at all. Um, I mean, I always did fine in school. Um, I was lucky that I was a good test taker because uh, I didn't have the world's greatest study habits. But uh, they just, you know, they would tell me all the time that that I was smart. And I think at some point you start believing them, even if you're not that smart. And so, uh, you know, it was just expected that you would do well. And um, but obviously I must, you know, I have some some way of making it all work, whether you call that smart or just, uh, you know, somebody that can make it all kind of click along or you work hard or whatever the case may be. You know, at some point, you combine all that stuff, and, and then you end up calling it drive on the other side. And uh, so how smarts works into that, it's definitely a part of it. But I, I certainly never thought of myself as being smart like my dad was smart, you know. You, if you're going to play trivia, I am the last person you want on your team. I couldn't tell you the first thing about any movie, TV show, the only thing I can tell you anything about is animals and outdoors. That's it. Other than that, I'm completely worthless. <laughs> I'm serious. I the trivia you did see me coming. They're like, good Lord, just leave. <laughs> All right. Let, let, me, let me rephrase uh, this question then. Let me ask you this. What is, what is the outside of work? What are the most important things to you today? When you get done with work, what what's the most important things to you? How do you spend your time today? 
Well, I mean, usually, I mean, at this point in my life, it's all about the kids, right? So, I mean, I leave the office. It's like as soon as we get off this, I'm going to pick one up, and then I'll go home, and we'll eat dinner, and then I'll play some catch with one and throw the other one the basketball. And, you know, that's just a huge part of my life right now. Our kids are 13 and 15 and involved in sports and everything else. And so, you know, family is is at the top of the food chain uh, for now. That's for sure. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I also, the, my wheels are always spinning, man. So, I mean, we'll get to this way down the list, I'm sure. But, you know, there's just things that kind of trip my trigger that I think are cool. I'm going to spend some time thinking outside the box about that stuff, about, okay, I like this. How can we be more efficient? Or how can we build a better mousetrap? Or how can we do it differently? And here's the problems. Here's the things that I don't like. How can we get around those things and, and uh, you know, make this a cleaner process and an easier process for for us and then also for the people on the backside that are the consumer, or the builder, or the user, or whatever. So it'll, that'll make sense later when we get into it. But, uh, you know, I've got some other projects that are, that are new, um, and so I spend a lot of time thinking about that. And uh, same thing with, you know, with everything, whether it's Momars or Habitat Flats or dogs or whatever, you know, just always trying to, I spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, you know, are we doing this the right way? Can we do it a little bit better? What can we do differently? All that. The the reason that I say that, though, Ira, is what is important to you now, it was instilled in you back then. Yeah, even sure un- un- uh, unconsciously, it, you know, I, I see friends now. I love spending time with my family. Uh, we we spend we do everything together, and I see I have friends that and they just go out on the weekends and leave the kids with the babysitter and 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 family. It was instilled in me, and I'm not trying to make this about me. I'm just saying that family was taught to me that it was important. People were important. Spending sure. time I mean, together about, as a family was important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about your friend group. You know, your friend group tends to be people that are interested in the same things you are. So, uh, you know, my friend group's largely made up of outdoorsmen, people that like to cook, people that I went to college with. Uh, all that stuff, you know, and then my wife and I talk about it, you know, both of our parents are still married, which, uh, you know, marriage is a a challenge. Everybody that's been married knows that whether you're still together or not. And, um, we're, we're fortunate enough to still be together, uh, even though it's a miracle for God's sakes. And she'd tell you that before I do, but, uh, you know, and then most of our friends are, are, are still married also. So, I hear what you're saying, man. Um, I think you surround your pe- yourself by people with similar values to what you grew up with, and 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 all that stuff. So I think I think you're right on there. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 marriage is a like I said. I'm not trying to make this about me, but I saw my mom and daddy go through hell, and they would sit here and tell you as their testimony that they did. But they knew they were not. Divorce never entered the conversation ever with them. No matter how right. tough it got, they they got through it. That's right. And that that's, that's what you got to do. For goodness' sake. That, 
that's a value to me now. Yeah. <clears throat> there, there's there's a couple other things on here, Rocky, that that uh, that I think will will help to give some background to that stuff and kind of what's going on too. And I'd made this outline for all of us, and I'm not doing a great job following it here, really. But you know, we talk about work ethic and that kind of stuff. I mean, when I was 13. I was teaching swimming lessons to little kids, so I mean like, you know, five, six years old, and um, with my mom, for and she'd pay me a portion of whatever it was that we'd make, and uh, so I bought a, a Browning uh, A5, it was, it was the first or second year that they'd gone to Japan, or it, it hadn't been very long, and I bought a 12-gauge Magnum for $500, and man, I was so proud of myself, I'd bought my own gun and all that, and we... Uh, we were living in South Carolina at the time, so we weren't really duck hunting very much unless we were on vacation going to one of my grandparents' homes. We did a lot of deer hunting, and, and my dad belonged to a deer camp there, a deer club. And as crazy as it may sound to everybody here listening, back in those days, and, and I think still some today, you hunted deer there in the low country of South Carolina with dogs, and you shot the deer with buckshot out of a, a shotgun. So you know, you might have 25 or 30 guys that were at deer camp, men, and several kids, and the next morning you'd block off a piece of timber, they'd turn the dogs in there, you'd listen to them bay, and if they were coming your way, then, you know, you could hear the dogs getting louder, and of course, the little kid, oh my God, I'd start shaking and all that, and, uh, oh, yeah. and so I, you yep. know, here comes my first opportunity at a deer, and that poor little three-pointer or whatever it was steps out at you know, 40 yards, and I shoot it, it falls down, and I see an ear twitch, and I shoot it again, and then it's laying there, and I see a foot twitch, and I shoot it again, and my dad's going, stop, stop, and uh, so that was the story of my first deer, and my, my first gun, and, and all that, you know, but uh, shoot, our, you know, th th there's probably not very many 13-year-olds that are that are earning that kind of money, uh, and, and doing, having that kind of expectations nowadays, you know what I mean? Oh, I agree. Maybe some, I hope some. And then uh, an, another story that's kind of funny is, uh, like I said, my dad would take us hunting all the time, but he was no passionate, I mean, he didn't really know a lot about hunting, really. And so he took me turkey hunting one time, and we're going, we're driving out there, and of course, I know nothing about turkey hunting. And he goes, uh, he goes, here, and he hands me half a ballpoint pen, you know, the one you can unscrew from the middle. And I said, okay, what I do with this? He said, well, you you suck on it, and it sounds like a turkey. And so I'm sucking Gosh. on it. Of course, not making any noise at all. And I'm like, well, what's one sound like? And he goes, well, you kind of put your lips together, and you suck on it, and then it makes this noise that sounds like a turkey. And I'm like, all right, well, show me what it sounds like. And so, of course, he had no idea what in the world he was doing, so... He makes some noise on it, like, you know, like, and I'm like, okay, all right, well, that must be what a turkey sounds like. So he sets me down at this tree, and he disappears, and I'm sitting there with this half a ballpoint pen, and every single noise that I hear in my mind is a turkey. So, I mean, I'm petrified to move. He told me not to move, and I think, I don't even know what I'm listening for, but I think everything I hear is a turkey, and I'm sitting there sucking on that ballpoint pen, and I would have had more chance of killing a a bull elephant than I would have a killing a turkey that day, I'm sure. <laughs> that was the kind of stuff we did back then. 
I think it's cool that you and Aaron are are still so close. Um, yeah. Y'all do everything together now, still, right? Yeah, we do a lot together. I mean, we, you know, I mean, we're both uh, owners of Habitat Flats, and we have our own place up there and our own house up there. And, and you know, now that our clinics are bigger and more established and all that, we actually hunt together a pretty fair amount nowadays. You know, there was a period of time where we really didn't get to go together very much at all. But nowadays we do. And, uh, yeah, we've just, you know, like I said, he was my best friend growing up, and we did everything together. I mean, we didn't really have any anybody else around. We always enjoyed each other's company, and I used to whoop up on him pretty good until uh, until he got bigger than I did. <laughs> One day he turned and whooped my ass, and I said, okay, that's enough of that. We'll just, we'll just be friends from now on. And that's kind of the way it's been since then, because he could definitely still stomp a mud hole on me, uh, no questions asked. He's a big old boy. <laughs> and, you know, we well, spent time in Alaska together. Uh, we spent time, of course, growing up, we hunted together. Me and him and my dad, that we either hunted or fished every weekend. And, um, you know, it was, it was just so different in South Carolina than it is here. We snagged shad and bluegill fish and deer hunted and all that stuff and and then we moved to uh, Missouri. You know, I was a junior in high school. So can you imagine, you know, going through from, from fifth grade to tenth grade in South Carolina, having your own boat and all that, and starting to get a few friends that weren't your brother, and then your parents tell you you're moving to the middle of the cornfields in South Carolina or in uh, Missouri. Man, it was it was a hard pill for a 16-year-old kid, 15-year-old kid to swallow. That's for sure. Um but then, you know, we moved here, and, uh, man, it was just no big deal. I mean, just get right in and clicked right along. And, uh, you know, all the all the preconceived notions of how terrible it was going to be were were just great and no problem. And uh, and so then, we you know, we were super busy with school and college. And then kind of our next big thing that we did together was uh, was going to Alaska. You know, we the first time I went up there, he was not with me that trip. And, um, I lived in a tent and we went up there early. There was nothing going on. I lived in a tent with two of my buddies and, uh, I'll tell you just one or two quick stories about that. So we're, we're waiting on a train. We were on the Kenai Peninsula and there was nothing happening. So we decided that we needed to go like over to Cordova was going to be the first place where anything was happening. So we, um, went back to, a place called Portage, which was just a little place on the side of the road. And we were just hitchhiking back then. I mean, we had no money. We had no car. We had no nothing. Um, and so we hitchhiked back to Portage, and it was going to be like five days till the train came that was going to take us through this mountain pass to Seward, Alaska. And all we had eaten for two or three weeks was instant rice and peanut butter. And uh, we were pumping our water out of the creek and all that. So I go to – I go to uh, get some water one day and there were five harlequin drakes in this creek and we hadn't eaten any protein or meat for weeks and so i grab a couple rocks there and i go sneaking up there and the ducks take off and i throw my throw my rocks and i'll be dang if i don't hit one right on the top of the head so it lands in the water and i finally go and fish it out of the creek there you know and and uh we ate that sucker and that was probably the best duck i ever ate in my life 
Oh my and I'm, lord! And I'm sure I'm the only human being that is probably I can't imagine any other human beings ever killed Harlequin Drake on the wing. Can you? With a rock. With a rock, yeah. 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 And <laughs> no, I can't imagine and that. And ate it and didn't get it mounted. Oh gosh, no. So the next day we thought, okay, that meat was pretty good. We're gonna go kill the heck out of ducks. We got all these rocks. And, you know, there were quite a few ducks around in the marshes and whatnot, and we threw and threw and threw and threw, and we never even got close to getting another duck, for goodness <laughs> sakes. Through till one arm was three inches longer than the other one, that's for sure. <laughs> night. Oh, yeah. Well, we are just about out of time. Our next week, I want to talk about, uh, I want to talk a little bit about vet school. I know that we, we went ahead just a little bit today, but I want to talk about vet school because I I understand what vet school is like. That's a, that's a tough deal. And a lot of people don't know that vet school is tougher than med school. It's definitely competitive to get into. That's for sure. I mean, you don't just sign up for it and go, um, uh, you know, it's it's a whole application process, very competitive, and you know, you're you're lucky to get in. Uh, some things have changed since then too, but but it's definitely uh, it's definitely a competitive world to get into. And then once you're in there, you know, you, there's some expectations to on on what's expected from you and, and what you need to be doing and all that stuff. So you're darn sure. Or just not going to skip every day of school and show up on test day and, and go through with flying colors, that's for sure. It's a commitment. It is definitely growing a commitment. Up, growing, up outside, growing up outside, all that hunting and fishing, it, when, when, when did you decide that you wanted to be a vet? Did your brother decide at the same time that he wanted to be one also? No, man, we're we're so weird when it comes to the world of veterinary medicine because every uh, every person that's in vet school it's what they've wanted. It's been their life's desire for their whole life. I mean, they've been, they've known they want to be a vet and all that stuff. I had no earthly idea what I wanted to do. I, I either wanted to be a game warden or a wildlife biologist were probably the biggest things that I was thinking about doing. Um, vet school was on my radar screen. I worked for a vet in, in high school for two summers, and I guess that's why it was on my radar screen, but it wasn't like I was signed up for pre-med and gung-ho and wanted to go to vet school. In fact, I thought, well, hell, there's no way I'm going to get in. I just applied as a, well, I mean, I was kind of obligated to it since I'd worked at this veterinary's, veterinarian's office. And, uh, I mean, you could have knocked me upside the two-by-four the day that they told me that my dumb butt had gotten accepted. I was like, are you kidding me? I, and then, of course, once you get accepted, you're like, Heck, I guess I'm going to vet school. But that is definitely not the norm at all. No, that is mm. true. Yeah, that is true. Well, look, we'll use that kind of a, as a guiding point. We'll talk about that period of time um, and what was going on in your life when you were in vet school. Kind of use that as a, you know, go out a few years around vet school next week. Yeah, man, I'll just uh, I'll lead into it with this. I was definitely the black sheep of my class, that's for sure. <laughs> this, well, this should be real interesting then. Oh, boy. Yeah. 
Well, Ramsey, thank you for being here with us. Ira, thank you again. I, I think it's going to be a, a great uh, podcast series with you. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun doing this with you. So thank you guys again. We want to thank all of you that listened to this edition of the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DuckTop.com. <laughs>